welcome to Extra Milestone, where every month we celebrate a classic film anniversary over here at Cinemaholics. And these are the films that we believe went the extra mile in their filmmaking, so we consider them and celebrate them as extra milestones of film. I'm John Negroni, host of the Cinemaholics main show, and with me, of course, she loves classic cinema almost as much as she loves cinema itself. It's Julia Tatey. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me back. It's it's a bit of a recurring thing, Julia, and we're both kind of tackling something this month that is a bit daunting, I want to say, because we're looking into... Did you yeah. say daunting or did you say donkey? Uh, we can, oh, we can no. Say either. <laughs> oh, no. So to set this up, we are talking about O Hazard Baltazar. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And this this month had one of the most stacked lists of film anniversaries we could have tackled. I won't even name them because we don't want you to be disappointed <laughs> that we aren't talking about any of those other films. And to be totally clear, I am absolutely thrilled we decided to go with this one because it may not be the flashiest extra milestone in terms of like everyone's heard of this movie and seen it. But this absolutely, for me, is crossing off a huge film on my cinematic bucket list. And that is Oh Hazard Balthazar. I've heard about this movie, Julia, for so long. I'm so excited. We're finally going to celebrate it. It came out in 1966, May 1966. We are we had to do this a little bit later, so you'll be hearing this in June. But yeah, this is our May extra milestone. And yeah, Julia, I know when I brought this up, I think you were like, yes, let's do the French film, <laughs> the Robert Robert Bresson film that came out uh, in 1966. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that both of us were really kind of inkling for a challenge and I really do think that Ohazar Bathazar really presented such a great exploration of a part of cinema that we really haven't discussed thus far in Extra Milestone but I think that definitely it's a part of the history of cinema the exploration of cinema and the different waves of film history that have occurred within the last couple of decades that we definitely had to go through. Yeah, I've always, always wanted to talk about Robert Bresson on this podcast because he is such an influential and important filmmaker. It's actually kind of disappointing, I think, probably to me at least, that we haven't touched on his one of his films before. Now, to be totally 100% clear, not only was this the first time for both of us watching this movie, for me, this was only the third Bresson film that I have seen. I haven't seen all of his films. I have studied some of his films and I've looked at them and I've, I've learned a lot of things about his career and like what makes him such an influential figure and exploring his entire filmography would absolutely be in my best interest as a critic because if you read any essays or if you listen to interviews from a lot of filmmakers, many, many filmmakers, young and old, they borrow, even if they don't know it, so much cinematic language and sensibility from Bresson. And we're going to talk about that a lot in this movie. The two films I've seen from him before were A Man Escaped and Pickpocket. And I have to say, both of them, terrific films, some of the best films of all time. But Balthazar, kind of to what you're saying, is one of his most challenging. And Bresson is kind of known as a filmmaker who makes extremely challenging films. So Julia, if you're ready, I'm ready to talk about this movie and maybe kick things off a little bit with just some talk about Brisson himself and like what people can get into if this might be their first time seeing one of his films or one of his first films in a while. Because I believe this was your first 
uh, Bresson film, right? Yeah, this is actually my entry point into Bresson's filmography. You know, he is one of the filmmakers that, of course, has been discussed so much throughout film criticism, dating back to, you know, different French waves of cinema, up with the names of Chantal Ackerman, Agnes Verda, Jean-Luc Godard, of course. But this is really my entry point with Bresson's filmography, a name that I had heard multiple times through reading scholarship as well as just learning about the history of cinema, but I had never really brought myself to the challenge of exploring one of his films. Same here until pretty recently. And this is, I think, exciting for both of us because hopefully over Extra Milestone, we can both watch more of his films. And it's exciting to me because I think watching one of his films, especially for the first time, is such an experience because he is known as a filmmaker who was notoriously contrarian as a as an artist, he would purposely not watch movies. He comes across as a person who doesn't even like the medium, but it's kind of like an Anton Ego thing from Ratatouille where it's not because he dislikes the medium, it's because if he doesn't love something, he won't even bother with it. Maybe one of these days we can have a longer conversation about his backstory. He, he lived a fascinating and long life. But I think that is one of the key things to know about him is he was someone who tried really hard to be an individualist, to present films in their purest form. He was a very religious man. You see that a lot in his movies. He believed in things. He was very relentless in the things he believed in. He believed in austerity. He believed in minimalism. He was very, very careful about things that so many other filmmakers take for granted. He was cautious about using music in his film unless it was diegetic. And even then, you might, you know, diegetic music in his films is also used extremely sparingly. You'll notice in uh, Ozar Balthazar, barely uses any music or any score whatsoever. And that was really kind of part and parcel with his personality. He just had a unique style that was really all of his own. And he would find different ways to express emotion without trying to be emotionally manipulative. He would try to bring out emotion just through an expression on someone's face. And I believe after uh, his initial work in the 40s and 50s, he just stopped using professional actors altogether because he really believed that professional actors and how they act, it, it just rubbed him the wrong way, but he loved taking on novice actors and bringing out something that was more authentic or something that he could sign off on. So as you can you can tell, he was a bit he was a bit cantankerous, but I think the results speak for themselves. It is a filmography that really made a huge, huge stamp. He was one of the filmmakers that really inspired the ones who would take on the French New Wave. To be clear, Bresson started making films in the 1940s, and he made films during the French New Wave, but he wasn't Truffaut. He, he wasn't Godard. They were learning from him. They grew up watching his films, and they were the critics, the, the young Turks, the ones who saw his films and were like, cinema could be this good. Let's create our own community of filmmakers who are going to deliver on the promises of cinema in the 1950s and the 1960s. So he is, he is very essential to that movement. I wouldn't say his films, in my opinion, at least the ones I've seen, sum up the French New Wave because I just don't think he was really and purposely part of it. But as far as Ozard Baltazar goes, 
This one I think is almost indistinguishable to me, and that's probably it says more about me and my relationship with the French New Wave, me not being a, an expert by any means. But for me, it was a little indistinguishable with a lot of the things I love about some of my favorite French New Wave films uh, by filmmakers you referenced, Julia. And this movie is frequently considered one of the greatest movies of all time. It came out May 25th, 1966 internationally, or I think in Europe. And then I believe it came out in the US a few years later. And in the very beginning of its run, because it did play in New York in 1966, but in America, people did not like it. (laughs) Americans were not feeling it. However, in Europe, the critics there absolutely loved it, including Jean-Luc Godard, who would actually go on to marry uh, a year later, um, Anne Wyazemski, who plays Marie in the film. And yeah, Godard loved this movie. He said that everyone who sees this film will be absolutely astonished because this film is really the world in an hour and a half. So that's interesting. Julia, what do you, what do you make of that? Do you think Americans in the 60s, was it was it because of us? We just couldn't, uh, <laughs> we, we didn't get it? I don't think so. I think that, you know, this is something that we touched on when we were talking about Gilda, when this was the post-World War II era. It was a lot of consumption and capitalizing on the kind of flamboyancy and the escapism of film and cinema. There were a lot of movies about just very, I don't want to say outlandish, but they were definitely films that offered a type of reality that wasn't the one many folks were living. And at this point, also, America was coming out of this huge boom that came after World War II, where there had been so much sacrifice and so much longing and hope for something better than what so many people were living in. So I'm sure that seeing a movie like Oh Hazar Balthazar would have been a little bit too much of a reminder of the sacrifices as well as the despondency of two decades prior, which is, I think, what so many people were trying to escape in America. And they were trying to build upon this newfound reality, this idea of being the greatest and moving towards greatness and even more glamour and escapism and newfound realities that we couldn't necessarily find two decades prior in the 1940s, but we were capitalizing on in the 1960s. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And what surprises me a lot about this movie too is that I've heard about it over the years, but I do think it is one of the more understated films in terms of like classic films because plenty of cinephiles have seen this movie, sure, But compared to other films, like I think of like Cleo from five to seven or Breathless or 400 Blows, a lot of these movies feel like ones that people I know outside of like the the cinema, you know, world film, Twitter and all that stuff. They've heard of all those films, but this one tends to kind of slip through people's radar, which I find kind of interesting, even though it is widely considered a masterpiece. In fact, it's uh, it's ranked 16th on Sight and Sound's greatest films of all time. So that's extremely high. It was 21st in the director's poll, and it continues, I believe, to be a huge hit for the Criterion Collection. And I I know that's how I saw this movie was through the Criterion channel. And I believe that's how you saw it as well, right? Uh, yes. Okay. (laughs) 
sound like you're about to confess something. It's like, well. <laughs> no, it's true. I do subscribe to the Criterion channel. Heck yeah. Um, one of the one of the great streaming services. But yes, it is a film I believe doesn't get probably doesn't get talked about enough. But when it does get talked about, that people definitely love talking about it. So to kind of give some setup for this movie, it is most people believe it's kind of loosely inspired by a passage from The Idiot, uh, which is fr uh, from Fyodor Dostoevsky. And that novel has this part in it where there is a, a donkey that is kind of like being given over to various owners. And this movie kind of follows the skeleton of that plot because we follow this donkey named Baltazar from when he is born and how he has some owners who are very kind to him and treat him humanely, including the main character of this movie, Marie, played by Ian Wyzemski. And some people, however, are extremely cruel. And it's sort of a movie about how the donkey is just sort of receiving human empathy and human cruelty all the same and just doesn't seem to really have any sort of understanding of anything outside of this earthly vessel. And the movie draws a lot of parallels between the life of Balthazar and the life of Marie herself. It's a movie about humanity, like what makes us people and how our humanity is affected by our communities, our society, and our decisions. I mentioned earlier how Bresson himself, you know, he, he was somebody who dealt a lot with the purity of the world and the way that he thought people should see it. So he can be very preachy in his movies, very moralistic. And I do think that is certainly the case here. And I think what really shines more than anything is the filmmaking itself in this movie, because it's not just about the sins of humans, but it really is about how even something like that can be utterly beautiful and also mundane at the exact same time. And I, I won't get too much into the plot of this movie. I've kind of touched on the bare gist of it. There's a lot of people in this movie, including a, a boy played by Gerard, who initiates an abusive relationship with the main character. There is a whole side story about a drunk man, and th there's a lot that happens in this movie, but I don't know if we'll get into the nuts and bolts of all of that necessarily. Maybe we will, but I do want to bring up one important thing about the plot, which is that we're mainly in the French countryside, and the film takes place near the Pyrenees, which is a mountain range that makes up the border between France and Spain. So there's some political stuff that deals with that and the way that like people smuggle things to make money. You kind of mentioned, too, like we were talking about how people in Europe kind of connected with this movie a bit more in the 1960s. I definitely had that thought of, yeah, like people, I think, understand <laughs> or people over there had a, a more immediate understanding and empathy for the characters and the story here. Well, I assume and I sort of expect that it might have gone over some people's heads when they initially saw it in that time. So all of that said, Julia Tatey, what does this movie really mean to you as you watched it? What were some of the things you were thinking and feeling and, and how did you ultimately come away from Ohazard Baltazar? Right. Yeah. So I think that we talked about it prior to getting into our conversation with our listeners about this was a 
definitely a very challenging film to kind of not only parse through and watch and get through, but to also just process. I knew that by the end of watching Oh Hazard Brathazar that I was very affected by it. I had emotional reactions. I knew where my emotional allegiances lied with the characters specifically, but I didn't know how to really parse through and process what it was that I had seen. And you know, we talk about it sometimes on this podcast that you know, for as long as we have been talking about and critically analyzing these movies that came out decades ago, you know, we're still not experts and we have to have references for scholarship that we need to go through in order to really come to a conclusion for how we have processed and really understood a a an artifact of our popular culture or an artifact of cinematic culture that we might not have recognized or really understood our feeling for it. So for me, it was really important to kind of turn to different cultural critics from decades ago who are currently writing and so on to really firm up my own feeling and to give words to a lot of the emotions that I was experiencing. And one of my favorite pieces that I came to was, and this might sound kind of like a cop-out to some listeners, but it really was quite effective for me to read it in totality, was Roger Ebert's writing on Ohazard Balthazar in the early aughts. And he talked about Robert Bresson's film as being the cinema of empathy. And you touched on it as well, John, about how Bresson was definitely a filmmaker who really tried to strip all of the glitz and and the glamour and any kind of, you know, effects from what the story was that he was trying to tell. And it was really fascinating to read Ebert's take on how Bresson was this filmmaker who would really kind of capture his actors to the point where they were devoid of any semblance of acting and it was on the audience to really make decisions and process what they were watching to form their understanding of the text that they were seeing play out on screen. So for me it was really important to not only go through Eber's writing but then to revisit what I had watched, and I knew immediately that I completely aligned in my understanding with the text, the visual text, of knowing and understanding the very clear line between Balthazar and Marie as these figures who were somehow, for Marie, very much martyrized by the end of the film, and for Balthazar, very much this kind of holy figure that was baptized upon his birth and being brought into this family early on in the film and then really had to bear the burden of humanity that we get to see play out throughout that hour and 30 minutes. It's It seems like it's so simplistic, but to me, the words that I kept thinking of was that's a very stark film that finds the gray areas and creates binaries out of them and really forces its audience to confront a lot of the narrative complexities that it's trying to address. It is amazing how complex the film really is once you start to unpack it, because at first glance, 
it's so you know it, it it doesn't seem that way at first like it, it seems kind of straightforward you're sort of following along in the beginning of this movie of like okay so here are some characters i mean the movie does not hold your hand and like what's going on you really have to pay attention to this movie this is not a folding laundry movie even if you are french uh, language and you were able to understand what they're saying you really have to watch this movie i assume multiple times to get everything out of it because i was reading as i was watching the movie and i feel like i was probably missing certain things plot wise that were more visual in that sense i want to bring up a piece of work as well because yeah that roger ebert piece sounds really great i definitely want to look at that myself and uh, especially as a roger ebert fan myself but i i I found a, a piece on the movie that is really great it's from ignati vishnovetsky he used to be a staff critic for av club he's based out of chicago and i've been following his work for a long time and he he's a kind of critic and just to kind of set it up He's the kind of critic who is very hard on films, and but what I like about him is whenever he really likes something, I know exactly what kind of movie it is, and it's hard to put my finger on it, but I always check out something that he gives really high grades, and this film is one of his personal favorites. He did a whole essay on it a few years ago, and it's, I think, the only movie I've ever seen from him where he gave it five stars on Letterboxd. That said, I, I want to read this quick passage from the film, he says, Ohazard Baltazar is often called a difficult film. It is in the sense that Brisson resisted the way movie audiences were conditioned to watch movies, and Baltazar, his quote, models, as he preferred to call his often blank-faced, non-professional performers, don't portray characters, but lives, stripped of the momentary and reactive, revealing consistent arcs of tragedy, abuse, unhappiness, and desire, and a look for a hand reaching for another hand in the dark. I think that's so well put because when I watch this movie and I got a lot of, I got this out of pickpocket as well. And I think pickpocket arguably does this in an even stronger way, but it really sums up what I think makes Brisson's work, what it is and as good as it is. And that's the fact that he was just a master of the fundamentals. Brisson, he he just was, he was able to get things across without any sort of crutches he was able to get across what uh, Vishnevetsky is saying here about like the human lives and meaning. He was able to do it purely through the form of filmmaking itself. He didn't have to over rely on symbolism. He didn't have to have the most like straightforward dialogue in the world. He also wrote this film. I don't think I mentioned that. But he just he just understood that, no, if you make the aesthetics, if you nail the fundamentals and the ways of like gestures and blocking and how people kind of go back and forth and are able to say things non-verbally, then you get across so much meaning in a way that actually resonates with people, will stick with you because you'll remember an entire scene, not just a very in-your-face symbol that, you know, he could have done with this movie so much. I think, uh, yeah, Vishnevesky also says that one of the, the true strengths of, the, strengths of this movie is that he never humanizes Baltazar or even tries to. He sort of, like, presents Baltazar as the, like, salt of the earth. It's just, like, a miserable creature who just doesn't know anything but trudging through the railroad of life that he was born into. And it's that kind of thing, like even saying that out loud, Julie, that's the stuff I have hard time, a hard time processing because Brisson is just getting at some like deep truths about the human condition 
in such an effective way and in such an economical way. It, it truly is amazing to see. I completely agree with you. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were, you know, going through your own analysis just now is thinking about this idea of seeing narratives play out that aren't exceptions as so many films I think kind of rely on those narrative crutches and really try to be I don't want to say emotionally manipulative because not all films are but definitely some some films utilize emo emotional manipulation to try and drive um, care from audiences towards specific characters but one of the things that I think Bresson really mastered so well was demonstrating human experiences not as exceptions but as universal truths. So we get to see specific characters endure specific traumas or specific um, hindrances in their lives not as specific to their characters maybe but just to their circumstances. And I think that that's why perhaps in the 1960s in Europe it was received so well because these characters might not have been quote-unquote relatable which is kind of a flippant way to imbue emotional relationship with an audience member if you ask me but it was just really delineating a specific experience with certain emotional notes that resonated with people and I think more than anything that is the important one of the important takes to walk away from this film yeah when i watch this movie i struggle so much to make heads or tails of what bresson was purposely trying to say because he parallels like we mentioned before he parallels the life of baltazar and marie and marie is in this situation where she willingly after being victimized and traumatized by this abuser of a man she then willingly decides to turn away from her childhood sweetheart for reasons that I found personally understandable. He kind of creeped me out. But she she decides, you know, she's going to continue this relationship. And I don't think that that's like necessarily like I'm not impugning her whatsoever. In fact, I think I almost like the film. I almost want to impugn the film because it uses dialogue specifically from her mother judging her saying, well, why can't you, I mean, she doesn't say this outright, but the movie's kind of suggesting, why can't you be like Baltazar who just sort of like does is like, I think it's called a saint at one point in this film and just sort of accepts his fate and just sort of like lives life without complaining or something. And I want to believe that Brisson was doing that on purpose of saying that like, no, Marie is, a victim here like what she is suffering she doesn't deserve it and she's not asking for it but i can't tell if that's like my modern you know like eyes kind of painting this movie and i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with me doing that if i'm interpreting that does that make sense i think it, i mean i can kind of understand it but at the same time you know we see this narrative of balthasar being taken or given over from master to master and in marie's you know, from her standpoint, she is under the protection of her parents, mostly her father, because let's be honest, at that point, men really controlled the households, men had the money, so on and so forth. So she's kind of seeking a different type of, gosh, I, I, I really want to be thoughtful with my words here. 
Marie is going from one specific type of, gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like scenario, maybe? She, she's living in one, she's been living in one specific scenario with her parents, basically under the house of her father. And Jacques is her sweetheart that she supposedly pledged her love to when they were children. But now she's a young woman and a young adult. And Gerard is this very hyper-masculine, toxic individual who perhaps during those times where he presents his toxicity and other moments, he might present tenderness and he might present a way for her to rationalize, well, this person is violent during these moments, but during these moments, he isn't. Therefore, I can rationalize why I'm sustaining this relationship, why I feel comfortable being under this new umbrella. And it's just really fascinating to look at Marie's story and look at Balthazar's story in parallel with one another, because I really hesitate to use the phraseology that Marie goes from owner to owner. But we know and understand that women during the 1960s, regardless of whether you were in America or whether you were in Europe, kind of just went from house to house, it almost seemed, in terms of being under their father's house or being under their own house with their husband or being in this foray space with their new partner and, and starting to form their own space, build their own umbrella on which to be under. So it's her story is one that I find very tragic because there were so few options for women at that time. This was something that we discussed in, I think, Gilda, as well as perhaps another film that we went over from Extra Milestone. But, you know, I, I really hesitate to have such ire for Marie when she had such few options for herself at the time. And that's something that right. we context can contextualize within the time frame that this film was released, as well as within the time frame that the film is being represented. But we can also see the parallels between Marie and Balthazar as these two creatures who are kind of encumbered with this sense of dubious obedience to whatever place where they can find protection, where they can find some semblance of purpose within these two parallel realms. Yeah, that's how I ultimately choose to interpret it and see it as Brisson going in that direction with it, not trying to in some way hold up Balthazar as a standard, because I think that's the point of it's a Balthazar is a donkey, and it, nobody could live a life like that. Like nobody could be a mule who just lives life, never complaining, never having agency, just constantly putting up with everything and almost showing like, with Marie's story, making her a sympathetic character of like Marie herself, she deserves all of the empathy. She deserves the chance to make her own choices and to make decisions wrong or right that for her makes sense in the time. And it's because I think you have to keep in mind too that like he was a humanist director. He, he's a confusing person because he was very humanist, even though he was so religious. And so it's a lot of the, that's so that's part of like what's so frustrating because I, I never quite know what to make of him. And I love that at the same time, because that speaks a lot to 
human beings in general, a lot of us are a multitude and you can't really put anybody in a box. And I really appreciate that 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 is something you can do with this movie. And I, I wanted to say too, you know, this movie, like we, we've kind of touched on it a bit. I, I've been thinking a lot about why it is kind of challenging and why, like what separates this movie from other ones, including ones that we love. And I think it's like, there, there's such a difference between schlock and fine art. And schlock can come off as a bit of a pejorative for sure. And to be so clear, I love schlock. I love schlocky films. If a film beats me over the head with symbolism or is emotionally manipulative, I don't really care as long as I, I can still enjoy those movies. But I do think that there is an important and distinct place for fine art, which is the kind of art, and yes, art can be in schlock as well. That's why I said fine art. Um, I'm kind of like anticipating what people might say to that. But what is so valuable about fine art is, I think, that challenge of being like, okay, what if a movie tackled things from a different way? What could you get out of it then? So I would just challenge people, you know, if, if you watch any of the movies, we've, we've sort of, you know, it, it's a lot like spirits, you know, it, it's an acquired taste. It takes a little bit of practice. And my advice to people always is to watch a movie as fresh as you can or watch a movie with at least some research. I think either way is good. At least you at least do some research before or after the fact because it illuminates so many things and and as you get more practiced at it, it just helps to get the most out of all types of film and I think you know, I I don't want to over overstate it, but I I do think absorbing a dichotomy of films, a variety of films is really helpful to like life. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, but that's definitely one of my beliefs. Yeah, John, I really kind of want to piggyback off of what you've been saying. And one of the things that I really took from watching Brisson's film, and again, this was my entry point into his filmography. So I really, I really want to want to think about and want to discuss, you know, I think for a lot of um, young cinemaholics, for a lot of young cinephiles, we've been kind of brought up on a lot of uh, movies that have really made their thesis clear in their text. And I'm someone who really came into watching film and dissecting it as an art form by viewing it as a visual text and trying to find the thesis and really parse out whether or not a filmmaker and those with whom they associate writers, actors, crew members, cinematographers, whomever, are able to make a case for that thesis or are able to make their argument very sound and and very clear and concise. And I think that one of the challenges that comes about when watching a film like Ohazer Balthazar is is that the thesis from Brasson's perspective may be very clear, but it's on the audience to really take care and to parse through the details or the this, this starkness of his filmmaking and really come to terms with not only does the thesis, you know, make its point clear, but what is that thesis? 
And where is Brisson really taking this narrative that we're bearing witness to? Um, I think that that's one of the really great things about new waves of film. And as you refer to them as fine art, you know, independent filmmakers right now are really finding very complex narrative forms that are creating different means by which audiences can parse through films and really understand them not only as artifacts of popular culture, but also as texts that are worth reading and diving into and giving as much attention and tact to as any great novelist would. Um, I, in short, I loved watching El Hazard Balthazar and I <laughs> loved the challenge that it presented. And it's definitely a film that I really think is going to stick with me and really make an impact on how I view films moving forward because I was able to have an emotional reaction. It, I can tell you that it affected me, but this is a film that really offers new no passage, no clear passage, I would say, of how to find that effect. It just really reveals a lot of what any singular audience member is going through when they're watching the movie itself. And I think that really, if it doesn't explain in vague or broad terms how it can affect an audience member, I think that it can really contextualize for specific people who might be going into this movie without having seen any of Bresson's filmography and really give them a bit of a outline, a bit of an outline to kind of mind their way through. I'm so glad that you brought up modern films because one of the ones I was thinking about a lot, both during this one and right after, was Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, which, ah, man, it reminds me so much of how this movie is telling and storytelling so much through theme, particularly in the way that the animal is portrayed and the way the animal is the center of the story for reasons that speak a lot to what's wrong with humanity. It's funny to me too, because I remember also seeing uh, about this movie, Igmar Bergman said that uh, one of the reasons they didn't like it was because, it, oh, movies about donkeys aren't interesting. Movies about people are interesting. And it just strikes me so much of like kind of what we were talking about earlier is like that going over the head, you know, a little bit of some critics. And yeah, absolutely not the case for me. I and mean, especially with a movie like First Cow, which a 2019 movie technically, but I didn't see myself until last year. And you can see why that movie resonated so much with people. It kind of is of a piece. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you brought up First Cow and I I know that prior to us even like watching this movie and talking about it, I had brought up, you know, oh, I think that this movie, just from reading the description, this is going to be ha like Happy as Lazzaro, which was a film that came out just a few short years ago. I remember that we were talking about it on an episode of Cinemaholics when we were doing a preview for, I think it might have been like the summer of 2018 or 2019, but it's a film by Alice Rohrwacher and it was executive produced by Martin Scorsese. And I just thought there are these undertones of saint-like figures and you know we talked about how happy as Lazzaro was an Italian fable and this almost read as a fable based on just kind of the sparse 
synopses that I was able to get my hands on. And then you really get into it. And it still does really read kind of in this very fable-like, or even it could have been a very short story interpretation of a long form. If you kind of, a, a short story that could have ended up in long form. But as we, as I kept getting into Oh, Has There Balthazar, I kept thinking to myself, oh, this is nothing like Happy as Lazzaro. But I just, I couldn't help but go back to this idea of, you know, saintlyhood and very humanist stories. And I don't want to use humanist in, in a flippant way because I think that that term can be kind of thrown around, but very much in the sense of how these stories might seem, these characters and the experiences they go through might seem broad, but they're identifiable for the audiences who experience them. And that's kind of looking back as at Happy as Lazzaro, you know, it's such a, it's such a beautiful movie. And I too would recommend anyone if they have the opportunity, I believe it's on Netflix as well. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it just presents, these aren't characters with whom you can identify, but you can see the broadness of those narrative arcs and you can find the emotional beats that could resonate with audiences or with yourself. But yeah, it's it's just so fascinating to see how something so stark and so... I, I hesitate to say simplistic because everything that Bresson did was very purposeful, but very stark and very clear and concise as as Ohazar Balthazar and have it be replicated and almost paid homage to in decades later with something like Happy as Lazaro, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but I could still feel the, um, see and feel the, the replication or the connection between these these types of narratives yeah kind of jumping off a little bit of what you're saying there in terms of like identifiable characters I, and this will probably be one of the last things i mentioned you know I, I have been kind of thinking about what people might dislike about this movie or what people might immediately dismiss perhaps unfairly about this movie and i think it could rest a little bit in how they might not find the characters identifiable enough. I know there's a lot of conversation and theorizing about how the various characters in this movie represent the seven deadly sins. There's greed in this movie. There is lust and um, avarice and all of that sort of thing. Uh, I think what people might not like about that is they might see, well, you know, I'm not that bad or I don't treat people this way or my friends and family, like not, not everybody is like that. And I think they might miss the point a little bit of like what this movie is actually saying. I think this movie is sort of fundamentally getting down to, yes, when it comes to human beings and the capacity for how harmful we can be, it's probably best represented through the way we mistreat are animals. And I think that that's such a, an easy way in for a story because if I think if this movie had just been showing Marie sort of going through what happens in this movie, you know, we would have felt sadness. We would have felt like, ah, oh, so sorry that it happened to this person. But I think because they use the donkey of like, it, the donkey doesn't do anything wrong. The donkey is just a complete... It, it, this is, it's a symbol for innocence, you know, we, you know, talking about how he doesn't rely on symbols, but ultimately everything is a symbol of something. And I think that uh, even a minimalist film like that can't get away from the meaning that 
I think is so clear, which is that it doesn't matter how good people can be, there will always be people who will take advantage of you. And that's a really important lesson to learn. And I don't think the movie is trying to criticize all of humanity and try to say, we're all like this. We're all going to be terrible people because there are characters in this movie who are not like that, which is shown clearly through how some of the characters do treat the donkey fine you know at least fine i don't think i don't think anybody in this movie gets off scot-free in my opinion but yeah i i think that i come away from this movie definitely sad because i don't think it's clear about whether or not people can be redeemed but i do think that it, it is finding that the ones who make it through deserve to be celebrated and they deserve their their day in the sun i suppose yeah john i i can appreciate that reading but i'm not I'm not so sure that it's as binary as as that. Um, I I really hesitate to think about you know walking away from Oh Hazard Balthazar with this binary thinking of some people deserve their day in the sun or some people deserve this kind of redemption arc. Whereas Oh, I'm not saying that. Oh, I'm sorry. I might have misinterpreted what you were saying. I might have said it totally wrong. <laughs> I'm not saying it's it's trying to say like, oh, some people deserve redemption or anything. I'm saying that um, there's a capacity for people to find hope that they can be that there can be redemption for this experience, not like a personal sort of like even bad people, you know, definitely not saying that. So I, I think I communicated that poorly. Mm, okay, okay, okay. So perhaps this is kind of going on a more like biblical reading of, you know, if you, Regardless of your status in life, if you lead a good one, you're obedient and kind and decent, you will find paradise. You will find paradise in some form or another. I would say I don't think that's guaranteed. I think that's like what this movie is saying. It's like, it might not all be worth it. And then there might be like some form of redemption in some ways or some sort of like, you know, you might be lucky. But I think that this movie is a little bit more cynical than that. And it's, it's hard. It's, I think I agree with you. Like, I don't think it's binary. Like, I don't think it's like one or the other. It's almost like this sort of hateful spectrum of like life that like sometimes it just everything goes wrong no matter what you do. I don't think it's even hateful, though. And I don't I, you know, I, I, I still don't think that it's binary either. But I just think that, you know, it's this reading of you mentioned this quote, and I'm not sure if it's attributed to Bresson or if it's attributed to Godard. But you know, this film is life in 90 minutes is is the quote that that I'm thinking of. And there is no guarantee. You know, we can't walk away from this film knowing that Balthazar or Marie actually got to achieve the retribution for what they experienced on Earth. We don't know that at all. So in totality, I, I just feel like walking away from this movie and trying to parse through a very complicated thesis, knowing in very vague terms and in very broad terms that this is life, this is the world in 90 minutes, as that famous quote reads. But I, I just, I really hesitate to try to identify whether or not the film is trying to make itself applicable to there is redemption, there there is pain and suffering. I, I'm pretty sure it's very clear that there's pain and suffering in life, regard irregardless, disregardless of what you endure. But it's Bresson does not make it easy to walk away from this film feeling like you have a full grasp of the 
experience that you bore witness to. And I think that it's important that we realize that's okay. <laughs> you know, we, we've been brought up, especially for you and I and our generations, we've really been brought up on, on these narrative visual stories that rely on these, and I don't want to call them crush, crutches, they're just, you know, narrative tools that really try to help us identify with who the heroes are, who the protagonists, who the antagonists are, what the main thesis is, and how sh we should feel about it coming out with the sweeping music and so on and so forth, and all these other narrative tools. But Bresson kind of strips that all away to really make the audience make decisions and align their morals and their ethics on circumstances that happen to these, that befall these characters or these characters walk into throughout the film. It's really, it's a very difficult text to walk away from and really have a finite understanding of what you just bore witness to. Yeah, I 100% agree there. I don't think there is any one takeaway. It's all subjective. It's all sort of, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. It's like, it, to me, that's what I mean by like a spectrum. It's like you can interpret and apply what this movie is saying or kind of to what you're saying, it, just leave it be. This is just a matter of fact. It's a matter of life. And you can choose to be acknowledged that it exists and go on living and, and sort of do what you can to proceed. It's not really you know, but that's something I do like about this movie is it doesn't force a message or not, maybe not a message, but like a solution. It's like, here are all the problems. You have what you need to figure it out. And that is something that I respect out of the film, if that's what it's even going for. And I, I like what you said too, about how they're not, maybe crutches is the wrong word. They are tools. I think that, you know, in terms of what Bersana is saying, he's, I don't think he's saying that like using those things are wrong. I think what he disliked, you know, was that he thought that there were just so many redundancies in films that were, I think he called them too theatrical. And at least for his style, he found a lot of value in taking out those redundancies because he could kind of to borrow from your example, he didn't need the sweeping music. He could just frame the shot in a way that would elicit the same effect. And that's to me, what makes him like a maestro <laughs> and why people look at his films and are like, if I could do that, you know, that would be pretty cool and uh, a lot of filmmakers have definitely found success you know off his lead so he's you know great filmmaker in that sense yeah definitely i mean you use the term maestro to describe him i really think that he's more of like a craftsman very detail oriented very specific and meticulous. It, it just Oof. yeah meticulous meticulous is a great word um yeah, I mean, I don't have that many closing thoughts, and I'm not really sure we added to much of the conversation <laughs> that's been building in these past decades to go on Oh Hazard Bathazar. That's okay, though. We expressed our thoughts, and as newcomers, yeah. I think there's value to that, too. You know, I was looking I it up, so. and there aren't that many podcasts that I could find that even talk about this movie. I looked, and Well, I you guess, know what? There should know. be more. You know, we'll we'll start the trend and then other people can come in and, and yes, they can blow things up and, and do it even better, I hope. But I think we did an okay job. I think that we did our best and therefore no one should criticize us. Agreed. I think <laughs> but I think moving I think moving forward that if we can introduce our our audience and the cinemaholics out there to something new and something really challenging, then 
that might be outside of what they thought was kind of the canon of classic cinema, then I think that we've done something at least helpful. We've steered some people in the right direction, which I think is really great. Um, but it's definitely, if you really want to have a holistic approach to this art form, then I really think really challenging yourself and really acknowledging that you might not have all the answers and you might not have all the knowledge that you need is really important. And that's what really I felt like after leaving Ohazar Balthazar was that I knew that I was affected by this film, but I also knew walking away from it, I need to do my reading, I need to get myself learned, and I really need help processing what I just bore witness to. I agree. I, I think that's a perfect way to end it. I'll end with a recommendation to that effect. I highly recommend anybody who's listening who maybe they have seen Ohazar Balthazar and maybe one or two other Bresson films. And if you haven't seen it, you haven't seen any of them, then I highly recommend Moments of Grace, which is a long-form essay, a brilliant essay, uh, about the films of Robert Bresson, or Robert Bresson. I always pronounce it in the, the Anglican fashion. I apologize. But this is by David Gariff from the National Gallery of Arts. That's nga.gov. It's free to find. The full PDF is online. Again, it's Moments of Grace, the films of Robert Bresson. It takes you through his filmography, his filmmaking career. I read it a while back, and it's a brilliant read. It's, it's fascinating. It doesn't take that long to get through. You know, I said long form. You know, you it's like five and a half pages. You, you can do it. <laughs> and I, I highly recommend it. It's it's really lovely. It includes a lot of photos from some of his films. And uh, hopefully people will get something out of it as well. So definitely look into that. And with that, Julia, I think that's all the time we have. I think that is. So I guess we should probably hop ride on our donkeys. Yeah, hop on our donkeys <laughs> and ride off into the French sunset. Yeah, yeah. Until next time, and we'll let you know soon what our next extra milestone is going to be. But thank you, listeners, as always, for joining in. If you have your own thoughts on Ohazard Baltazar and you want to share them with us, our email is cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. You can find all of our content at cinemaholics.com. Hope to see you all there. Julia Tady, where can people find you? And uh, is there anything you want to plug that's coming up? You guys can follow me at JLTET14 on Twitter for my musings and for my memes, especially. I've been very quiet on the Twitterscape, but I am poised for a big return to, to, <laughs> to that social media platform, much to John's ire, because as we all know, right. I am his nemesis uh, on yes. that specific social media platform. And uh, if anything else, I just look forward to our my next return to the, what's this thing called again? Extra milestone. Extra milestone. <laughs> your, your, your favorite. <laughs> it's late on the eastern side of the country, you guys. That's right. <laughs> but I look forward to coming back to Extra I'll Milestone. I'll let you get back to your gang. I know you got some stuff to smuggle, so you get back oh to Oh my gosh. Yeah, we just got to load up the donkey and send some bread over to the other, to the Canadian border. Honestly, that's what there we're doing go. at this point. Well, signing off. Uh, from the internet, California, I'm John Negroni. From the internet in a field somewhere on the France and Spain border with my good pal, Balthazar the donkey, who is going to make his way back to our little old stable. I'm Julia Tady. See you next time. <laughs>